good morning. It's a real pleasure to be back here in Sierra Vista at Sky Islands with you all. And always excited to come down and see as you keep moving into this new sanctuary and space. I guess it's not new anymore, but um, it's great to be back. And I'm grateful for all of you being here on a holiday weekend. And hope you're enjoying the monsoons and the rains coming to the desert. It always brings me back to life after the kind of heat of June to get a little reprieve, even if it's humid, I guess. But So I'm just returning from General Assembly, our Unitarian Universalist annual gathering. It was in Columbus, Ohio this year. The overall theme for General Assembly this year was multi-faith and interreligious community building, um, within Unitarian Universalism, and it included much more than that as well. This year was a particularly powerful year. We had discussions and resolutions and actions at GA that were centered around racial justice, accessibility, class, divestment from Israel, clergy, sexual and misconduct, abuse of power, and questions about Unitarian Universalist commitment to challenging structural forms of systemic oppression. Just all that. (laughs) The week was dense and powerful, like I said, and it was a good reminder of the real effort it takes to hold the community together. It makes me mindful of this kind of new vision of community that people who drafted and signed the Declaration of Independence were hoping for some 240 years ago. And it makes me extra mindful of who was excluded intentionally or inadvertently from that new dream of community and how the last two and a half centuries have been spent trying to acknowledge the problems, apologize and reconcile, and make corrections and improvements. It's the never-ending work of building community. So today I'd like to focus a bit on the idea of community and what it takes to kind of keep us all together. And of course, community comes in many shapes and sizes. Our congregations and our fellowships are a form of community, and so is a college dorm or a rural village or a military base. We also have the metaphorical and um, identity-based communities, so the week at UU General Assembly definitely felt like a community. We can say there's the LGBTQ community, There's a lot of kinds of community out there, but for this morning, I wanted to tell you about a specific community that's really dear to my heart. When I moved out to California to start seminary, I really wanted to find an intentional community to live in. I could have moved into an apartment on campus, but I wanted to be a little further away from where I would be during my days, and it was kind of expensive. But I also knew I didn't want to just live off campus in a random you know, studio or apartment or whatever. So I started looking, and I found a place in the city of Pomona. It's about five miles from the school I was at. And it was called the Regenerative Co-op of Pomona. I found their website. It was called Regen for short. We called it Regen. And I responded to uh, a Craigslist ad that they had put up saying that they had some rooms available. And I wanted to know how to join this community. And they had a standardized interview process that they used. You would come and join them for a dinner, kind of an informal interview, get-to-know-you thing. And then you would come back again another night for a formal interview from the whole community. 
And since I was moving in from out of state, neither of these were really possible for me to do in person, so they waived the dinner requirement and they let me interview via Skype. And I did that Skype interview just a few weeks before classes started. I was really anxious about having my living situation figured out. So we did the interview. It was a little awkward on Skype, um, but it went well, and they approved me to move in. So I packed my car and drove to California to check out this intentional community. And I'd like to describe a little bit of what Regen looked like, what this community looked like. It was born out of a vision of a few students that graduated from um, a program called Regenerative Studies at Cal Poly Pomona. They wanted to find a way to bring the principles of sustainability and sustainable living um, that they had experienced on campus, they wanted to bring those principles into the real world, into an urban setting. And so in 1999, they bought their first house together. Today, Regen consists of four houses that are all within a few blocks of each other in the same neighborhood, uh, in, in a historic neighborhood of Pomona. So all the homes are about 100 years old. They're beautiful craftsman-style homes with uh, big front porches and really incredible interiors. They had um, you know, built-in cupboards and sideboards and leaded glass doors, uh, exposed beams in the roof and funky and cool light fixtures. Three of the homes were two stories, and the home I lived in was just a single story. They all had about five bedrooms. A couple of them had garages in the back that were converted into even funkier bedrooms. One had a little casita. And the house I lived in had a guy living in an Airstream trailer in the backyard. The population fluctuated around 25 of us, and it depended if there was singles or couples living in the rooms. And a couple points when I was there, we had families with children. And we had a really great mix of folks. We had about a third of us that were undergrads going to Cal Poly uh, Pomona or attending one of the five Claremont undergrad colleges. A third were grad students like myself. And another third were, um, I was trying to figure out how to describe them. They were doing their best to be adults, adulting in the world and working and doing what we do as adults. So it was a cool mix of folks there. We had people from all over the world, all kinds of languages and backgrounds and religions. We had different genders and orientations, people from various different class backgrounds, physical abilities, and ages everywhere from 2 to 60, at least in the three years that I was there. And the community was focused on sustainable living. That was sort of the underlying um, theme of the whole place. And so each home had a full solar electric system, Each home, we had redone all the plumbing, so the sinks and the showers and the washing machine watered the yard, and the yards were really uh, incredible. Each home started with a lawn when we purchased the homes, and we ripped out the lawns and replaced them with uh, native, low-water-use plants and edibles. My house had about 20 fruit trees on the property, and I think the community as a whole had somewhere around 60 We had plum and apple, peach, apricot, orange, lemon, kumquats, pomegranates, pineapple guavas, bananas, avocados, figs, mulberries, and grapes, and my favorite, ooh, a nectarine tree that was out of this world. 
And we had gardens. Each house maintained its own vegetable garden. Um, it kind of came and went depending on the green thumbs of who was living in the homes. But we had an amazing vegetable garden at my home, and I even planted extra vegetables. There was a little easement between the sidewalk and the curb of the street, and so I planted every year tomatoes and eggplants and squash that the neighbors could just pick and take with them. Uh, we would just share our abundance with the neighborhood. A couple houses had passive or active rainwater harvesting. My favorite was one of the homes we had dug a big hole and buried a cistern that captured rainwater, and we used the rainwater. We pumped it back into the house to flush the toilets so we didn't use uh, fresh water for the toilets. And my favorite thing about Regen, about this community, and this was the glue, I think, that held us together, was our dinners. We did community dinners five nights a week. And the deal was that each of us had to commit to cooking just one of those nights and bring a dish. So on any given night, with the number of us in the community, there was five or six people cooking and bringing food. And everyone else just had to show up. We would eat buffet style at 7 o'clock. And the other four nights, you could, you know, you had the night off. You just showed up and ate. And you can imagine as a grad student, that was a really great setup, um, only having to really cook that one night a week. So all in all, Regen was this amazing, beautiful place to live. About a year after I graduated and moved back to Arizona from California, I was back there visiting, and I thought I would stop by the house that I used to live in and just see how it looked and see what was going on. And I went in and found a couple of my old housemates that were still there, and we were chatting in the living room, and we moved into the kitchen, and uh, that's when I saw it. It was this modern engineering marvel. It was a stack of dishes in the sink that was engulfed both basins and it overflowed onto the counter. I'd never seen anything like it in all my years of living in intentional community. And I asked Nick, I said, what's going on? This was one of the housemates, and he said, you know, we call that the mountain of tolerance. (laughs) And he said, we just keep letting it pile up until somebody just can't tolerate it anymore. (laughs) And I thought, wow, so that's, that's where my intentional community is gone. And I remembered, living in community is not always smooth sailing. There's actually two features at each house in the Regen co-op that I thought contributed to... um, They were both helpful and problematic in how we kept our community together. So one of the features was the kitchen sink, and it was a perennial place of conflict. Unwashed, dirty dishes, and, and all the related phenomenon, so housemates that would hoard dirty dishes in their room, and then all the cups would be gone... Some housemates, um, one, one of them had a, a milk crate in her room, and she just would fill it up with all her dirty dishes and bring it down once every two weeks when she had the time to wash it while we all were wondering where everything was. My personal pet peeve, however, was when somebody cooked something and, and left the leftovers in a pot or a pan and just put it in the refrigerator. Because that took that pot or pan out of commission. And if you did that with three or four pots, soon you didn't have anything to cook with. And I just hated it when people did that. And I hated myself when I did that. (laughs) No one was exempt. And of course, even if we wanted to put stuff in Tupperwares, you know, we had four houses. So the likelihood of finding a Tupperware with a matching lid was nearly impossible. And I, 
imagine even those of us that live alone <laughs> find that that can be a problem. So we did have the rotating community night dinners, which forced the house to clean up their mountain of tolerance at least once a week. They had to tidy up the kitchen and do the dishes. So there was a sort of built-in corrective measure, a weekly reset button on the mountain of tolerance. But it reminded me of how many monthly house meetings we spent trying to come up with plans to deal with the dishes. And you would think that just the simple the simple um, rule is if you made it dirty, clean it. Just do that and it would be fine. But no, that just never worked. And so we, each month we would try different chore things and different ideas. My favorite was the dish plus one rule, which meant if you did wash dishes, you just grabbed one more thing and washed that too. And over time, you would wash all the things that got left behind. But that only worked if at least some people did the dishes. And the mountain of tolerance thwarted even the best laid plans for keeping our common spaces clean. And I mentioned there's two things in each house that, that I think um, played into how well the community functions. So the kitchen sink and the dirty dishes was one. The second feature that each house had was a little whiteboard. And we kept a little whiteboard, usually in the kitchen. And it was a place to leave messages to each other, maybe a grocery list of things that were needed, um, reminders of when the street sweeper was coming through, move your car, that kind of thing. But the whiteboard was also the place that one of the most community-destroying, person-angering, resentment-causing, and not-solution-creating kinds of communication took place. Passive-aggressive messages. And man, I've seen some good ones in my day. Usually they start off with, to whomever, or even a polite please. So I would see things like, to whomever left their laundry sitting in the washing machine for the last three days, something, something. Or please note that this house is indeed equipped with a broom, <laughs> and you're allowed to use it. <laughs> Learning to confront people directly about something is a hugely important community building and maintaining skill. And yet, it's often one of the things that seems to be one of the most difficult to maintain in community. And the fallout from a passive-aggressive message left on the whiteboard and the little snarky responses that followed could put our house in a funk for weeks. Over time, I learned that the well-being of our house and of our community was directly linked to the kitchen sink and that whiteboard. And I also, over time, learned to recognize my own passive-aggressive behaviors, which sometimes I would catch myself before. Sometimes I would realize it afterwards. Sometimes I just didn't care. And that's how we struggle, right? When being accountable in community, even with a good covenant, even with solid principles and values, we struggle with ways to clean up after ourselves, however that may look. And we struggle with healthy and direct communication. Sometimes we need a little help, some extra rules and guidelines. Over the last few years, I've spent some time studying the life of the Buddha. And because of my interest in intentional community building, I paid really close attention to how much of his time was spent administering his monastic community, it was called the Sangha. 
Buddhism was founded basically as an intentional community. People left their homes and became seekers and left their families behind, and they moved into these sanghas built all over northern India. And they were built around in northern India to allow these seekers to, to leave their homes behind and explore a path of spiritual enlightenment. So it seems like it would be a pretty chill group of people. Everyone's sitting around meditating a bunch. They're all mindful, and they're not leaving their dirty dishes around. In fact, in Buddhism, you just had one alms bowl. You didn't even have that many dirty dishes. But when the Buddha started the Sangha, he had a kind of utopian vision for how it would function. So he just had all the new monks take a set of vows, and that was your basis for admission into the Sangha. And these vows, along with the Buddha's basic teachings, the Dharma, were supposed to be enough to hold the Sangha together. So the Buddha thought. And in Unitarian Universalism, we too have our set of principles, and we agree to be in covenant with the congregations that we join. And we too often think that that should be enough to sustain our community. So in the Buddhist Sanghas early on in India, the monks were constantly coming up to the Buddha with problems and conflicts and quarrels and questions about protocol. And typically, the Buddha would try to get the monks to resolve their own problems and issues by asking them to apply the principles and apply the teachings. But as time would tell, that was never really sufficient. So the ancient Buddhist texts of the Pali Canon are filled with these stories and circumstances that led to the Buddha creating a whole litany of rules for the Sangha. One story that stood out to me uh, was this one time that the Buddha was out for a walk in one of his communities, and he passed by the quarters of a monk who had dysentery. The Buddha found this monk lying on the floor, unable to move, and literally covered in his own urine and excrement, even though other monks had been walking by and knew of his condition. And the Buddha stopped and asked him, what's going on? Why, why are you in such a state? And why are none of the other monks looking after you? The monk said, the sick monk said, I am of no use to this community. It's a sad response. And the Buddha, I imagine, somewhat saddened to hear that and perhaps frustrated to see that the community had left this sick monk alone, called the whole community together and rebuked the monks first and said, you know, you have all left your families behind, and so you no longer have your families to take care of you. We have to be the family that takes care of each other. And then he laid out a whole system of rules of how to take care of a sick monk, depending on if one monk was the teacher of another monk or if you had seniority over this monk. And it became very complicated. And the idea that I realized was even walking by, you would think common sense and compassion would move you to just take care of a problem. And in this case, even in the Buddhist Sangha community, that wasn't the case. And the Buddha had to lay down a whole series of rules to how to care for the sick. And over his decades of teaching and guiding the Sangha, many new rules were developed, governing everything from what not to say when someone sneezed to an entire set of guidelines of how women were to be admitted into the Sangha and the monastic order. The Sangha even had a set of rules 
for how to recite the rules. <laughs> Under what circumstances, how often, who would lead it. And then right before the Buddha died, right before he died, in the days before his death, he told one of his closest advisors that the community could get rid of any of the lesser rules that weren't helpful, that weren't serving the community anymore. But he didn't specify which rules were the lesser rules. And a great quarrel came up after the Buddha died, and they said, well, which rules are the lesser rules? And they couldn't agree upon which were the more important ones and the least important ones, so they just kept them all. And we often had a very similar conversation at my house at Regen. Do we really need all of these rules and guidelines and chore lists? Aren't we all adults here? Let's just get rid of all the little rules and we'll each just promise to clean up after each other or after ourselves and we'll promise to communicate directly when we have issues. Wishful thinking. Living in community ultimately taught me a lot about myself, as much as it did about how to build and maintain community in general. And one lesson is that we all have our equivalent to the mountain of tolerance, the sink full of dishes. And it really doesn't matter the size or the scope of the community, our homes, our workplaces, our congregations, the nation. So it might not be dirty dishes, but there's other spaces in our communities that are common or shared and without committed diligence. These spaces succumb to entropy and disorder and people get upset. Here in our congregations, that space might be the name tag rack. Maybe it's taking out the trash or sorting the recycling from the trash and people that put the wrong thing in the wrong side. Maybe it's the shelves or the closet where all the RE materials are supposed to be kept in neatly labeled bins. At my congregation, Reverend Linda might appreciate this, there's a cabinet where the tablecloths that are used just for memorial services. And Lord help us, you use. If somebody uses those tablecloths and doesn't fold them and put them back exactly how they found them. When I think of community, of course, I think of all our big picture visions and our principles and our covenants, our values, our vows, our promises. The Regen community that I lived in was built on this beautiful vision of sustainability. The early Buddhist Sangha focused on spiritual practice and achieving enlightenment. Our UU communities and congregations affirm the seven principles and promote living in right relations. Those are important foundations for our community. And always at a first glance, it feels like that would be enough to hold us together. But it's that day-to-day -day stuff of how we interact with each other that really builds up and sustains our community or makes it a struggle. How we care for and maintain our common spaces, how we choose to communicate and handle conflicts, that's what really keeps a community strong and sacred. A visitor to our, a potential, a visitor or a potential new member to one of our congregations and coming to a service, 
They might see a beautiful building or see a well-crafted covenant, but they'll pick up on the vibe of the place. If there's passive-aggressive stuff going on or if there's quarrels in the background, when we had visitors come to Regen or potential new community members, I would often run to the whiteboard and make sure it had nothing on it that would be embarrassing. I would erase it. And in typical passive-aggressive fashion, that was usually the only time I could erase the whiteboard because by erasing someone else's passive-aggressive message, that was passive-aggressive. It was a lose-lose situation. But it was the one place that I felt could really show you know, our inner dysfunction if somebody saw it. So I always erased the whiteboard. I went back again about a year ago to visit Regen, and I went into the house I lived in, and no one was there. We had a little key code on the door that I could still get in. So I went in, and I looked around the living room, and it was nice and clean. Went into the kitchen, check it out. The counters were pretty clean. Things were put away. The sink was empty of dishes. There was a few drying in the drying rack. It felt calm. It felt nice. And I checked the whiteboard, and it just had a few little doodles on it, a few groceries to buy, nothing snarky or sarcastic. I felt relieved. I don't know what changed over between the year that I had been there before, New people living in the house, I suppose, or some things maybe are just cyclical and dynamics play out. I've learned that in community, too, that a funk will generate and then over time the funk will go away and things return back to kind of a homeostasis. I was thirsty, so I went to the cabinet and I got a cup and filled it up with water, had a glass of water, and I left it in the sink and I walked out. (laughs) So may we all endeavor to do our best to keep our communities vibrant and alive and still have fun with life. May it be so.